good morning. Excited to be here with you this morning, and I hope you're excited to be here as well. And today we come to a text we all know well, and God's holy and inerrant word. And so I'm excited to look today at the prophet Jeremiah, and to particularly be looking at his 26th chapter. Now, you know, one of the things that's interesting about God's word is there is a repeated call to reform. You see it throughout the pages of Scripture. It's a, a call to reform, to return to what you were once doing. If your generation isn't doing it right, return to the previous generations who were obeying the will and word of God. We see it over and over again. We see from the very earliest days as the children of Israel enter the promised land that they begin to chase after the gods of their neighbors, which God commanded them not to do. There's a call to reform, to return to Worshiping the one true living and holy God. My friends, we see it throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Judges, the people turn away from God and follow the gods of their neighbors, and God brings judgment, and the people repent. God would raise up a judge who would bring the people back to obedience and freedom, and yet only to have the people sink back into sin and disobedience and idolatry. In fact, there are six cycles of this in the book of the Judges, and yet We see it over and over. It doesn't just end in the book of the Judges. We see it in the history of the divided kingdom. Now, not so much in the northern kingdom of Israel because they had wicked king after wicked king. There was no heart for revival because the hearts of the people were hardened. But in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were reformations. We saw it uh, in the story, if you will, that followed evil King Ahaz with the reformation of Hezekiah. Hezekiah's reformation and yet all of the work of Hezekiah was undone by Manasseh and made worse even by King Amon and yet after Amon dies there's an eight-year-old son who takes the throne and you can imagine the people moaning at their uncertain future but God brings blessings that are completely unexpected. That eight-year-old boy becomes one of the great kings of Judah King Josiah, the reformer, the tender-hearted king, seeks to glorify God, reopens and repairs the temple, and in the process of all of that, the Deuteronomy scroll is once more discovered, and a revival happens. A revival and reformation occurs. Now, my friends, we know they tore down the high places, tore down the idols. The word was reemphasized, the temple restored. That is a reformation, to be sure. But it's just a pattern that is seen throughout the pages of Scripture of God's call to reformation, God's call to reform our ways. It was this pattern that inspired those reformers who came in the great period of reformation of the church. Martin Luther, Jan Hus, Tyndale, the list goes on and on. The reformers who believed that God called us to be reforming his church. And so we see this pattern in the word of God. Today we want to look at Jeremiah chapter 26 because we'll see a call for reformation. If you have your Bibles, be reading chapter 26 verses 1 through verse 19 together. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord saying, thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house And speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house. All the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not diminish a word, 
Perhaps everyone will listen and turn from his evil way that I might relent concerning the calamity which I purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings. And you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, but you have not heeded. Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. So the priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. Now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of the speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, that the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him, saying, You will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without an inhabitant? And all the people were gathered against Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people, saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and against this city with all the words that you have heard. Now, therefore, amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. As for me, here I am in your hand. Do with me as seems good and proper to you. But know for certain that if you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, on its inhabitants. For truly the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve to die, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Then certain of the elders of the land rose up and spoke to all the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah and spoke to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah ever put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and seek the Lord's favor? And the Lord relented concerning the doom which he had pronounced against them. But we are doing great evil against ourselves. The word of the Lord. Amen. As we look at this amazing text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, a familiar story. A familiar story. Second of all, a theological revelation. And third and lastly, a steadfast call. Beginning with this idea of a familiar story, a new king enters the scene, Jehoiakim. Now, actually, if you know your history, uh, Jehoahaz was king for three months before Egypt deposed him and replaced him with his brother, Jehoiakim. This new king is a poor replacement compared to Josiah. 
As we said a moment ago, Josiah, one of the greatest kings in the history of the people of God. This great prophet, Jeremiah, continues his ministry of calling the people back to God. And this can be seen in the temple sermon as recorded in chapter 7. A great sermon worth going back and reading. But a summary or recap of that sermon starts today's chapter. Jeremiah calls the people back to God to walk in his ways and in his law and not to reject the word of the prophets whom he continues to send even though the people reject them. My friends, what a message on the grace of God we could preach right there. The people reject prophet after prophet and God and his long-suffering and gracious attitude towards sinners continues to send prophets to his people. My friend, Jeremiah calls them. Do not continue in the way you are going. Realize that calamity is on its way. If you do not heed this call, surely disaster will come. In fact, this promise of judgment is more startling than that. Judah has found a confidence in the presence of the temple, not as a place to worship and love God, but as an idol that would protect their land from the very threat that God is making against them in this text. Now, we could stop here and have a whole sermon just on how good and gracious gifts of God can be made into idols. You could think for a moment about the bronze serpent that had become an idol to the people. And here the temple itself becomes an idol to the people. They look at it and they say, there's no way God's judgment can fall upon us. You see that in this very text, that attitude. Listen to what Jeremiah says on behalf of God. I will make the temple like Shiloh. Now that's a shocking declaration. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle once stood with the Ark of the Covenant representing the very presence of God amongst his people. Yet because of the evil and sinfulness of the people, God allowed the Philistines to carry off the Ark and Shiloh was left desolate. If you have your Bible, which you should, turn to Psalm 78. And as you're getting here, I want you to just, we're going to be starting in verse 56, but listen to what the psalmist says about this very point, about God's judgment, if you will, in what happened to Shiloh. It says, starting in verse 56 of Psalm 78, Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, and they did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. My friends, do you, do you see here what's said? He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh in his abhorrence of the behavior of Israel. Jeremiah is applying this to the temple. He's saying, just as Shiloh was left, left desolate, so too can Jerusalem be. That is way too much for the temple priests and temple prophets. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
When the princes of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes, and all the people saying, This man deserves to die, for he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your ears. In other words, you've heard this with your own ears. There's no need to find someone who would testify to this. You've heard it yourself. This man prophesies against the temple, against the house of God. He had to die. He was deserving of death. They want to kill Jeremiah for prophesying on behalf of God. The very thing Jeremiah warns them about. God sends his prophets one after the other. You want to kill them. You show you reject the word and even the authority of Almighty God. Because you reject his speakers. You reject his people. My friends, how can you imagine disaster will not fall upon you? Jeremiah tells them in verses 12 through 15 that the Lord sent him to prophesy and that they need to listen. If they want to kill him, they can, but his blood will fall upon them and it will be a judgment against them. My friends, this is a dramatic moment. It is God who sent Jeremiah and his message can be summed up as this, amend your ways. Now, that's how most translations have it, isn't it? It's what the translation of the New King James says. Now, therefore, amend your ways. That's because the root word in the Hebrew, yetav, means to make right or to set right. But in this case, it's calling them to set right or mend to something previous, to go back to something better. Therefore, Jeremiah scholar J. Thompson argues that reform your ways is the most accurate translation. That's why we titled the sermon today now therefore reform your ways reform your ways if you do not want to see a city laid waste if you do not want to see a people carried away if you don't want to see the temple torn down and abandoned by God then as a people you must turn from your evil ways and seek love and worship God now you can read the rest of this chapter it's really interesting isn't it Jeremiah is saved by the remembrance that Micah had preached a similar message and that message had been listened to. Hezekiah had listened to Micah when he preached a similar message. And therefore, Jeremiah should be let go because when that message had been preached by Micah and Hezekiah had listened, God relented of disaster. You can hear in this, we are not doing ourselves any favors if we put to death this prophet of God. Now, it's interesting they let Jeremiah live, but they do not heed his word. Because if you were to read to the end of that chapter, and I pray that you will, in your own time, you will read about Uriah, a prophet of God who prophesied against the city, a prophet they hunt down and put to death. So Jeremiah's words are not listened to. They are not obeyed. In that sense, what a familiar story it is. A familiar story that God's prophet is sent and he is not obeyed. There is lip service about obeying him. There is feigned obedience, but there is no change in the heart. That brings us to our second point this morning. A theological revelation. Because it leads to a serious question. How did things get so bad so quick? Josiah had died not that long before this. He had brought the great reforms that we associate with Josiah's Reformation. What happened? And it's a 
question that brings us to a theological answer, a theological revelation. There should have been a reason to rejoice in the days of Josiah, but all the reforms did not accomplish what Josiah desired. Why? Well, Jeremiah comes to understand the answer. Restoring right practice does not matter if it comes from rebellious and evil hearts. I want you to think about that for a moment. Restoring right practice does not matter if it comes from rebellious and evil hearts. In other words, it won't long last if the people are just running through the motions, if there is no reformation of heart that goes along with the reformation of action. Jeremiah's problem is the same as we had seen in the days of Isaiah. Sure, things have been ordered rightly. The people go to the temple, but for the wrong reasons. They offer sacrifices, but for the wrong motives. They say the right things, but their hearts are far away from God. As Isaiah said, the Lord says, The people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based merely on human rules that they have been taught. Jesus quoted that in his own day. You see, this gets to the very heart of the matter because the question is whether the heart is in it at all. In Jeremiah's day, the heart was absent, love for God absent, fear of God absent. Jeremiah saw this and it informs the very center of his message. Here is a people who are uncircumcised of heart and they will never seek God. They will never seek after God until that changes. In other words, the problem is not a lack of certain scrolls or governmental commands. The problem is of a people who need transformed hearts. The problem is of a people who need new hearts. Circumcised hearts. That's the message that Jeremiah brings forth in chapter 31, where he speaks of a day in which God will establish a new covenant that will accomplish that very end. If you have your Bibles, be turning to chapter 31 and just look at that famous passage. You'll see it. Jeremiah knows what is needed. He understands what is needed. Beginning in verse 31, the great prophet Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Amen. Jeremiah comes to discover that this promise is God's answer to our worship problem. It has always been God's plan, not a temple that would forever sit in the midst of a single human earthly city representing God's presence in the midst of the people, but that God's presence would be found indwelling His people. What an awesome and glorious promise that is. So if we've seen our first point this morning, that there is a familiar story at play here in which the people reject the prophets of God and the message of God. In fact, they reject God Himself and they are 
called to reform their ways. And if we've seen our second point this morning, that there is a reason behind all of that. The people do not seek after God because they have hearts of stone. They have uncircumcised hearts, and what they really need is a work of God to circumcise their hearts. We want to recognize that out of all of this comes a steadfast call. There was a steadfast call that Jeremiah gave that the people were to reform their ways. And we have seen that call throughout the Bible, as we mentioned at the beginning, and it has flown throughout the age and history of the church. The church is called to reform its ways. One of the cries from the Reformation of the church, semper reformanda, always reforming. The idea was that the Reformation was not a one-time act, but a something that consistently happened. The church should always be reforming itself, always looking to the Word of God, always looking to God's revelation and reforming our ways according to the Word and will of God. And we see that we need it because there is always a danger that we would elevate what we are doing above the Word of God. That's the very thing Isaiah was saying that we read a moment ago. The people honor God with their mouths, but their hearts are very far away. They're only interested in worshiping God by human rules, in other words, by their own standards. My friends, what we recognize here is that we must come to God's word and be reformed by the word of God. We must reform the church according to the word of God. And that brings us to one of the great questions of the Reformation. Where is authority found? Because one of the great battles, in fact, if you want to talk about the great battle that set off the flame, if you will, of the Reformation. It was on this question of indulgences, wasn't it? In 1517, Luther was questioning, on what authority is this based? Right, That was the question of the day. The Catholic Church said it's based on the authority of the Pope. Luther said, give me a a scriptural citation. There is nothing in the Word of God that says anything of indulgences, anything of this merit that is purchased, if you will, through indulgences. But Luther said the authority is found in the Holy Scriptures. And the Pope's authority would only go so far as he accurately interprets the Word of God. He has no authority outside of that. Now, my friends, what Luther believed was if that were true, then the people of God should be the people of God's Word. They should use it as a guide to discern truth. They need to know what it says. And it's interesting because... Luther made such a push, didn't he, to translate the Bible into German. In other words, he was putting his money where his mouth was. He said the word is important, and so it needs to be translated into your language so you can read it. How can we use the word of God as a a guide, as a, a tool of reformation in the church and in our own lives if we don't know what it says? My friends, if you don't know what the Bible says... You can be led down any path. So we must always be reforming, recognizing that God is calling us to go back to the Scriptures, to read them, to know what they say, to judge every message, to make sure that we are standing in the will and Word of God. And my friends, as we think about this theme of Reformation, we ought to thank God for those that stood in that fire, stood on the principle of reforming the church according to the word and will of God. Men like Tyndale, with his desire to see the plowboy in the field, know more of the scriptures than the Pope in Rome. Wycliffe, 
and his desire to see God honored as the Bible is read by God's people. Lady Jane Grey, who would rather lose her life than recant her faith. Jan Hus, who went to the fires believing that God would use his death to free the church from what Martin Luther would later call its own Babylonian captivity. And Martin Luther, who dared to ask where indulgences can be found in the scriptures, took the Catholic Church on and ultimately said, Here I stand, I can do no other. My friends, we need to recognize that there are many who risked much reforming the church that we now are the inheritors of. Many that paid the ultimate price that we might have what we have today. We should not take it for granted, but we should thank God. We truly stand on the shoulders of giants. These men and women were not interested in simple happiness. And they were not doing it for themselves. They were literally laying down their lives for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to close by saying today that we don't look at this text in Jeremiah as if it has no application to us. It has clear application. And we don't look back to these great reformers, these great men and women who risked their life or even gave their life that they might reform the church. We don't look back at them and say, well, they were a half a millennia ago, and so they have no relevance to us today. That to which they were called, we are called. We are called to stand on the word of God. We are called to be always reforming the church. And this goes back even before Luther and Hus and and Tyndale and Wycliffe. It goes before all of them, doesn't it? It goes back even to the scriptures. We see a call to reformation in Galatians where Paul says you got off to a great start. Who tripped you up? In other words, get back to running the way you were before. And we see it in the Old Testament where the people of God were called back to obedience to the word and will of God. We stand in a line of people called to reform our ways. And my friends, we are always called to be reforming. There is nothing that our church does that should be untouchable. Procedure, practice, protocol, technique. There should be nothing that is done in this church that we don't ask, does it stand in accord with the revealed will of Almighty God as testified to in the Holy Scriptures? My friends, if there is such a thing, if there is such a thing, then I would remind us to look back at Isaiah, what Isaiah said just a little bit earlier. To put our ways above God's ways or our wisdom above God's wisdom is the very thing that got those generations in trouble. And so much of what has gone wrong with the church through the years has been man elevating his own thinking above the revealed will of God. Whatever it might be, in any church, our church or any other church, we must be willing to knock it down if it does not stand in accord with the word of God. My friends, we are called to reformation. As a church, yes, but in our own lives. Are your personal beliefs in accord with the revealed will of God? Are your actions in accord with the revealed will of God? We stand here today, and the same question is asked of us that Jeremiah asked of his generation. On what authority will you stand? Your own wisdom or the wisdom of God? Your own counsel or the counsel of God. 
my friends, Jeremiah calls out to us today, as he did to his generation, Now therefore, reform your ways according to the will and word of God. Amen.